Hello, and welcome to the SBS Tour de France podcast. I'm Philip Gomes, and with me are Kevin Eddy, Jamie Finch-Penninger, and Anthony Tan. Well, if you don't know already, uh, Michael Matthews has turned a page on years of bad luck by winning the 10th stage of the Tour de France, uh, completing a set of Grand Tour victories after a pretty significant breakaway with some seriously big hitters. Uh, Matthews um, beat uh, Peter Sagan uh, into, uh, into second place and uh, with Edvald Bosenhagen from Dimension Data uh, in third place. He received a tremendous amount of support from uh, two particular teammates, which was Daryl Impey and also Luke Durbridge. Now, the big talking point, apart from Matthews, and we'll get back to that in a second, had to do with the break, which had some pretty significant, uh, significant riders in it. Probably the best collection of riders uh, in the history of Tour de France in any break. And effectively, the race turned out to be uh, a classic, maybe one of the best this year. Uh, Kevin, you you had some you got some numbers for us. Yeah, I did a bit of a uh, bit of uh, working out uh, the, uh, the the aggregate palmares of the uh, super break this morning. Um, so thirteen riders in the uh, in the break that formed at the bottom of the Port de Lanvalera, um, and between those thirteen riders, uh, the aggregate uh, wins were four Grand Tour victories, courtesy of Nibali, two World Championships, twenty five national championships. 21 Tour de France stage victories, 22 days in the yellow jersey across all 13 riders, more than 50 Grand Tour stage victories in total, five spring classics and two monuments. So that just gives you a bit of an idea of the quality of the riders there. Anthony, best break ever? Sounded pretty soft to me, Phil. No, it was it was <laughs> awesome. It was the the best break I've ever seen at a Tour de France. Uh, I think what made it special for me was that People were saying that Matthew's win was going to be a fait accompli as soon as you had the numerical advantage. But for me, just because of the quality of the break, I didn't think it was a done deal. And I thought, oh, gee, we have to give it to them. We criticise them a lot, uh, particularly in the first week. I thought they played their tactics poorly because it still looked like they hadn't sorted their crap out with... Uh, Gerens and Matthews, I still don't think they have. but um, And also, I still maintain that I think the best place for Matthews next year is um, Giant Alperson, but we'll get to that later. We'll get to that. Yes, that's right. Uh, Jamie, uh, Matthews' victory, uh, describe what the setup was uh, for that to occur. Well, I described it as D-Day for Orica Green Edge in terms of getting a stage victory yesterday, and they turned out to be the Allies storming storming the beaches, and they, they took the win. Uh, and they did it by creating numbers in that front group with Durbridge and MP supporting Matthews. And then when the split occurred about, um, I think it was 50Ks into the finish? Yeah, anyway. 25-30, I think. Okay, yeah, into the finish there, it was... It was Durbridge who really um, took the initiative there to bridge across to Sagan and then maintain that advantage over the chasers, including my good friend Rui Costa. But um, yeah, and then and then going into the fin- final, it was Impey who was making all the attacks and making everyone chase him. The attacks were getting progressively weaker by the by the end. Um, his last attack didn't actually make it beyond the front rider um, of Sagan who was leading. But he, the important thing was that he tried and. And that helped Matthews keep it together for the sprint and not expend any energy that was unneeded. Um, one of the things that struck me in some of the vision afterwards, was we have some in-car vision of, uh, of, of uh, team manager um, Matt White. Matthew Blanco, 
as uh, Esteban Chavez calls him, uh, where he looked tremendously relieved. And if you look at the backstage pass as well, uh, there were tears in his eyes. Uh, clearly a tremendous amount of pressure on that team. Yeah, I think, well, let's remember they haven't won a stage since stage five of the 2013 Tour de France when they won the team time trial in Nice, followed, which followed uh, Guerin's win in Corsica. Uh, so, yeah, two years without a win. Uh, uh, let's remember they, they're not up there with Sky in terms of funding, but they are very well funded. Uh, so and then they they have uh, before last year's Walter they were a stage hunting team so for a stage hunting team well funded to not have a stage win in, in the biggest bike race in the world that puts a lot of pressure uh, I have to say perhaps that some of those tears was because of White realizing that maybe they I, I they shouldn't have let bling go because most likely you know 99% he is leaving OBE at the end of this season I think Matthews has shown why he's such a valuable rider this guy has at least 10 good years ahead of him and so sometimes you have to make those hard calls it sounds I'm not having, um, I guess I'm having a bit of a go at Garen's here because he's only got a shelf life of maybe a couple more years when you compare it with someone like Matthews for me is reminiscent of Sagan. He's a little bit quirky. Uh, he's a similar type of bike rider. And I just feel he's one of the most exciting talents, not simply because he's an Australian. I mean, I'm not really even a, a massive a parochial fan, but I just think in terms of what his longevity and what he can provide uh, to a team, he's, you know, he's, he's right up there. Um, we do need to talk about the man who finished in second place because the work he did uh, towards the end of the race was prodigious, to say the least. And uh, sadly, he came off second best. I mean, he's someone you really want to see win a race. But in this case, you know, we're kind of torn as Australian. We, we don't necessarily want to see second win. But... Really, maybe Sagan was the real winner in the day because he was just incredible, wasn't he, Kev? Well, as uh, as the sole uh, Brit here, I feel very entitled to say that Sagan was totally robbed. <laughs> he did all the work. He attacked from the gun. He attacked three or four times up the climb. He attacked on the descent. He did all the work in the break. He attacked uh, on the berg, um, which split the breakaway. He attacked on the on the berg seven k from the end. He attacked everywhere, and he came second. So Jamie he should have done less work. <laughs> and actually, that's a good question, though. I mean, do you think that Sagan's performance actually cost him to win in the end? I think it's a return to Sagan's tactics, which saw him finish in the top five so many times two or three years ago when he was constantly finishing off the win, but always looking the strongest bike rider. He was forced to follow moves. And since then, we've seen him become a bit more mature, I think, in taking that um, World Championships victory. We didn't see him until he made his decisive attack. And we've seen him in more recent times be a bit more patient. But, yeah, this this time I think we saw... Well, I think it was partly due to the tactics of Orica Green Edge. They drew him out and they did that very successfully and forced him to waste energy. But, yeah, uh, it was a bit of a... A, f- a fall in tactics, but then again, he's, he's racing for the green jersey, and that's what he—that's what he accomplished. He got—he got into green, and this is why we see Sagan winning green all the time because he's willing to go on these ridiculous moves, and you know, and they pay off. Uh, setting new standards, really, for wearing the uh, rainbow stripes. I mean, whoever comes next, the, the next world champion, has a lot to live up to, really. 
Um, I think uh, we don't think that Sagan's going to win the next world championship because of the nature of the course, but um, whoever does, whether it's Cav or whether it's Greipel or whether it's Marcel Kittel, uh, they're not going to be able to do what uh, Sagan has been able to do this year in terms of show showmaking, you know. Um, do any of the other, other any of the other riders, Anthony, in the break, uh, do they have any questions to questions to answer, or is basically them just sitting there watching Orica Greenedge dominate along with uh, along with Sagan? Well, I, I would say that Sagan didn't do. He he did everything he needed to do in in my opinion. I I thought the other guys in the break didn't do enough. I mean, they just all sat on his wheel. They waited for him to make the moves on that category three climb, uh, some eight and a half kilometers from the finish. Uh, I I just felt it was poor form by Boisson Hagen, Van Avermaet. I mean, these guys. They're, they've got such good pedigrees in one-day races, and I, I felt they didn't treat that. Uh, they they said they treat these stages as one-day races, but for me, they didn't race like a... The only person who raced like a one-day racer was uh, Matthews and Sagan for me. I, I, I thought the others came up short. Sagan had to make those moves because the others weren't making them. Uh, you know, Otherwise, he would have come to the finish with... 15 riders in that break instead of seven he if he hadn't split it up in the crosswinds with about 20 25 kilometers to go um kevin one interesting side note from this uh involves zwift right which is kind of a unique yes. little thing <laughs> orca orca bike exchange and its riders seem to be making a little bit of a specialty of involving zwift in its wins in some way i mean we had matthew Heyman using the using the online training dev- uh, service um, to recover from injury, and then he went on to win pa- uh, uh, Perry roubaix And uh, last night, uh, Bling did what? Well, I don't want to overstate uh, exactly how much Zwift had to do with uh, Matthew's victory. Um, he has done one Zwift session of an hour and a half, which was 35Ks yesterday. So uh, I don't think it's a core plank of his, uh, of his, uh, of his training program. Um, however, I don't think you can deny that Zwift is starting to kind of catch on in the peloton a bit more. Um, obviously, people have been looking at it since Matt Heyman used it. Um, you see people from other teams using it as well. Andre Greipel turns up on Zwift from time to time. Um, Trek uh, Segafredo, they do uh, Zwift group rides on uh, on rest days. Um, I think we're going to see it more and more as part of an, part of the arsenal of the pro rider in terms of a training, uh, a training uh, uh, item. And and in some in some ways as well, it it, it means that uh, the riders may on really bad days, bad weather days, if you're just out training on a regular training phase, I mean you're just going to hop on that rather than head out and get cold, aren't yeah. you? Oh, is correlation causation though? I mean, I know a lot of the riders <laughs> play FIFA after they um, finish a stage. Does that make them, you know, better at cycling from playing a soccer game? Yes. Because the competition, the the passing, the interplay. I mean, okay, come on, Phil. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'm agreeing with uh, Jamie here. I mean, the, should we say that? Well, did you see that Matthew set it up in the bathroom of his hotel? Awesome. You know, so I like the tweet from Swift though. They said it was a bog standard setup. Yeah, it was. It, it's just you know, just basic ads. That's that's actually my style. Right. For those that don't know, it's, uh, it takes a bit of coin to get uh, to get the top fledge set up. Uh, you need a, a really sweet trainer and and all the other kit. So by the time you're done, well, you know you're up for some serious coin. But uh, it's well worth it if you uh, 
if you want to have a give it a you want to give it a go for yourself. I mean, it's catching on massively uh, amongst amateur riders. I mean, there's a there's a couple of rides that go on during the week that have like 200 people turned up for a virtual bunch ride, which is which is just incredible. And yeah. and what happens what happens to your uh, to your computer when that happens? Well, well, my my computer falls over completely and I have to leave. But you know, it's uh, you need equipment. Yeah, serious equipment. Okay, that's yeah. enough plugs. Soon you're going to say, <laughs> Kev, that people are dating on Zwift while they're training. There's an idea. The first, I'm, I'm the waiting. first person to get married. I'm wearing, yeah, I'm while waiting for first doing a training session. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll move on from that because uh, anyway, that's that's kind of fun. Anyway, I like I like the fact that they bring that that whole community element into uh, into the professional peloton. I think that's probably the revelation to me is the way these guys engage with uh, with the cycling audience. Uh, even in a virtual world, while they may be away on the road somewhere, they can still connect. And I think that brings the fans and the athletes much, much closer together. Um, let's look ahead to, uh, to, to the next stage, uh, which is uh, Carcascon to uh, Montpellier, uh, which for this tour is pretty much pancake, pancake flat, uh, 162.5 kilometers, uh, two climbs. And, of course, one sprint. Um, who we got? Uh, any Anything of note from this stage, Anthony, historically? Well, I've already written the preview, Phil. It's five words. There will be a sprint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, well, what we know about Montpellier is that uh, in historically this is a stage where the big sprinters win. Uh, it's all started in... Uh, 93 with Olaf Ludwig and then we had McEwen win uh, and uh, most recently it was Greipel I think about three years ago uh, but interestingly also the, uh, often the person the sprinter who wins in Montpellier also has won the Maio Vert but uh, I think if anyone other than Sagan is to win the green jersey, they must. It's not a. It's not a should win in Montpellier. They must win in Montpellier because he's he's got the lead. He got the lead off Cavendish last night. Uh, there's only probably one more chance other than tonight to to rack up points, and then the next chance is uh, well Paris. Uh, any picks from you, Jamie, for tonight? Just the standards, I'm afraid. You know, Kittel, Greipel, Cavendish. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure I can see a winner outside of those three. Maybe, maybe Sagan if he gets the jump, if he you know pulls off a particularly um, good run into the sprint. But who's under the most pressure to to grab a stage? Greipel out of out of those three he hasn't won yet, and he won four last year. And I think they're expecting things from him. He did take a bit of pressure off with his wins in the Giro, but the comment from the rest day was that the only thing they were missing from their performance so far at the Tour de France was a stage win, and that has to come from Greipel, essentially. I mean, maybe Galpan can sneak off and get one, but it's a big if with him, whereas Greipel, they're expecting victories. Any calls from you, Kev? Well, I'm still holding on to the slim hope that we're going to get massive crosswinds, heaps of echelons and complete chaos, um, like uh, the 2013 stage where Valverde lost 10 minutes. Um whether that will happen or not, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, that's what I'm that's what I'm praying for. You've got both. You've got two wins here, both coming from the north. You've got the Mistral, which everyone knows, encircles the Ventoux, and then you have the what they call the Tramontane, which is a, a nor'westerly, um, and then Montpellier is very close to the sea. So you also got the winds from the coast, and that can, can create havoc. Um, well. On that note, I think we'll, we'll end because uh, if it's one thing we've learned about the Tour de France is to never assume 
that a particular stage is going to be a quiet formality. Uh, something always happens. Um, you go to bed and you think, uh, well, you know, it'll just be a sprint stage tonight. What could possibly go wrong? And you end up with a fantastic stage like last night. And, uh, you know, tonight you might end up with crosswinds. So look out for, uh, for tonight, the 11th stage, 162.5-kilometer ride. Uh, we are going to be live on SBS and in the Skoda Tour Tracker apps from 10, 10 p.m. for what could be another interesting stage for the entire peloton. Mm-hmm.